0: Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is A.J. Malkowitz. My co-host, Leah Kaufman, will tell you a little about what you'll hear today in podcast number four.
1: Today I'll talk with Dr. Frederick Schoen. He's a pathologist whose lab is studying how natural heart valve tissues develop and mature. Dr. Schoen's work is part of a larger effort to create a functional tissue-engineered heart valve to replace valves that are damaged or deformed. Let's listen to that now. Dr. Frederick Schoen is a professor of pathology at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School in Boston. He is also a member of the faculty at the Health, Science, and Technology Division at Harvard and MIT, and he's joining us today to talk about his work um, trying to replicate heart valves. Dr. Schoen, can you tell us why heart valves are such a problem, a sticky wicket in cardiology? Well, heart
0: valves are uh, are extremely important in regulating cardiac function. They, in fact, keep blood flowing through the heart uh, in a forward direction and prevent flow in a backward direction. And uh, heart valve disease is actually far more common than, uh, than I think is generally uh, realized. Uh, in particular, uh, aortic stenosis, meaning a blockage of the aortic valve, which is the valve that uh, leads from the left ventricle, the, the primary heart pumping chamber, to the aorta, allowing blood to go to, uh, to all the other organs, is actually a very common uh, problem in elderly people. Mm-hmm. Uh, at any one time, something more than 3% of, uh, of people have uh, aortic stenosis, and probably um, 30,000 or so people a year in the United States are uh, uh, have surgery, open-heart surgery, for, for this problem. There are many other heart problems as well, in uh, heart valve problems. Including uh, congenital problems, so children—about um, one percent of children are born with congenital heart disease—and one of the one of the important problems is damaged heart valves that just haven't developed properly.
1: Can you say a little bit about what happens to the person who's suffering from a heart valve that isn't working properly?
0: Well, if if your heart valves are not working properly, uh, depending on exactly what the disease is, there are two problems: either the valve is uh, not completely open when it should be open, it's obstructing the flow, in which case the, uh, say, the left ventricle, if it's the aortic valve, is overworked, and eventually that ventricle can fail, Uh, and so uh, uh, heart valve disease is a cause of heart failure. Similarly, if the valve is uh, what we call regurgitant, meaning it doesn't, keep blood from going backwards. Uh, let's say there's a, a tear in it or the uh, the leaflets don't meet properly. Blood goes backwards, and that blood that goes backwards has to be pumped over and over again. And once again, uh, the heart muscle may be overworked and eventually fail.
1: And what is the current state-of-the-art for treatment?
0: The conventional uh, treatment is open-heart surgery uh, with, uh, with valve replacement, uh, and the kinds of valves that are used are either totally mechanical valves or valves that are made from animal tissues, hmm. uh, particularly a pig aortic valve, so it's, it's anatomically similar to a, uh, a natural valve, or cow pericardial tissue, the the outside lining sac of the heart. And those tissues are treated with, with a chemical solution, a chemical solution called glutaraldehyde, which... Uh, basically uh, tans the, uh, the tissue. It's very similar chemically to the process which tans uh, leather. Uh, and consequently, those valves are not alive, meaning they cannot repair themselves uh, when uh, just normal function causes some damage. And, uh, and eventually, uh, all of these kinds of valves fail. Hmm. The mechanical valves have a particular problem in that they tend to accumulate blood clot on the surface, and anybody who has a mechanical valve replacement has to uh, take uh, blood thinners or anticoagulants. It's a particular problem in uh, in children, where uh, children who have congenital valve problems and need valve replacement may require multiple operations as they outgrow the replacements are put in, so that if one could truly have a valve that would grow uh, and repair with the individual, this uh, might be a, a real boon to children uh, and also uh, have a greater longevity in adults.
1: So it sounds like the current state-of-the-art is adequate, but perhaps a little bulky and clumsy. You need I think to... that's
0: a great way to describe it. Many people have been helped in the 45 years since uh, since heart valve replacement really began as a, as a widely used clinical procedure. Uh, and people generally do well, but uh, we could be serving these folks a lot better.
1: And what, do you, what is your lab's vision and the field vision of that better way? What are you working to Well, I think do? There, are, there are several visions. One is to conceivably grow
0: a heart valve on the bench by taking appropriate cells, perhaps even from the individual who would be the recipient of the valve, uh, to eliminate any immunological problems, actually take cells uh, and take a uh, uh, a synthetic plastic formed into the shape of a valve that you would have a sort of a mesh, and you would uh, actually put the patient's own cells on this plastic valve on the benchtop in the laboratory. You would grow the uh, the cells into a tissue on this plastic, still still on the benchtop and then uh, ultimately implant that as the heart valve rep- replacement uh, in the diseased individual. That's one way of doing it, and, and alternatively, the thought is, although we're a long way from uh, from either, really, of these approaches, is to truly understand how heart valves develop in all of us as we are uh, fetuses, really, in in the womb, uh, to understand the processes that take place, to understand how the heart valves actually maintain themselves and uh, remodel as damage occurs during our, our lifetimes, uh, and use those processes to hopefully actually repair. Uh, heart valves without the need of an operation—a We're a long way from that, but it's very exciting.
1: That's what your lab, in particular, is. That's doing, That's what right? we
0: are most interested in. Those two kinds of uh, approaches. This is a very, uh, a very difficult problem. The heart beats uh, about forty million times a year, so these valves have to open and close and not, uh, not accumulate damage that can't be repaired. Uh, while this is happening, and some, some artificial valve has to work. Fully at the moment you at uh, the surgeon implants it and uh, has to continue working for the life of the individual.
1: And this is a great um, reminder to our listeners of the challenges of regenerative medicine. That you you know the body is sort of an amazing machine that's evolved and developed to work in the appropriate ways under you know incredible mechanical and physical loads. So it's important for your lab, for instance, to know how those functions. Come into being in the first place because there's sort of no sense trying to recreate them in a lab or synthetically unless you fully understand them so that, you know, your replacement tissue works completely and works well. Absolutely. And I think
0: you've just said something very, very important that let me try and emphasize, mm-hmm. uh, which is in order to do these kinds of therapies, uh, we. Uh, have to take advantage of basic biology and physiology and pathophysiology in understanding how normal structures work uh, and how diseases keep them from working. But the converse is also true in that by studying these very, very novel kinds of uh, technologies and therapies, we may be able to understand better uh, how to take care of people and prevent the damage that we're talking about.
1: So even you're saying even before you, you fully realized a synthetic heart valve in the lab that can be used in people that you're, that medicine is progressing because of the work that you're doing to understand the, the basic um, disease
0: process. And, and uh, there are many byproducts to this research which uh, have a much shorter timeline in terms of introducing them back into standard medical care.
1: Oh, I see. So, if we're twenty years away from a synthetic heart valve, or a, I mean, a tissue engineered heart valve, I should say, then we're we're realizing gains even sooner. Definitely. From, okay. Now, you're a pathologist, which I find interesting. How is it that you got involved with this sort of work, and how is pathology important to this sort of work? Well, I
0: came to this uh, to this field and my profession in a roundabout way. Uh, I began as a uh, as a material scientist in an engineering school, uh, and uh, I did my undergraduate work and, and a doctorate in material science, working on fairly classical materials. When I uh, graduated from from my engineering school, I wanted to use my uh, my engineering in a uh, in a way that was more more effective towards social causes than working for an automobile company or uh, some other classical way that most of my colleagues were going. And I had the opportunity, very fortunately, to have as my first uh, position an industrial postdoctoral position that actually was working on materials for artificial heart valves and uh, other medical devices. At that point, biomedical engineering was a very, very young field that people really didn't. Understand uh, what were the acro- appropriate career paths, and uh, and I felt and had the opportunity to uh, that attending medical school uh, would be the uh, the way to go, and ultimately pathology was the uh, cardiovascular pathology, and uh, as a specialty was the best way to put together all of my goals. and And interestingly, to me, and I think, that, uh, fortunately for me, material science and thinking about how the structure of materials determines their properties is really a very similar thinking process to effective pathology practice and that is how does the structure of tissues uh, affect their function Mm -hmm. and how is uh, uh, what are the correlations between altered function and altered structure and it's really a very uh, sort of unified thinking process that has helped me.
1: And do you collaborate with folks from other fields?
0: Uh, absolutely. I collaborate uh, to a large degree on the one hand with cardiac surgeons, pediatric cardiac surgeons, uh, and uh, uh, and cardiologists in our research. And these are the the uh, collaborators that actually, implant valves, uh, both clinically using conventional devices and really understand what the limitations are of those conventional devices, as well as do the uh, what is presently the experimental work in, uh, in animals. Uh, on the other hand, I also collaborate with developmental biologists and very basic scientists in uh, uh, biological areas and engineers who are working on the materials uh, side of it. Uh, one can really think of this as three different parts uh, of the problem. One of them is the cells that we use. Another is the, uh, the plastics that we use, the polymer, or in the tissue engineering field, these are referred to as scaffolds. They're basically like, uh, like scaffolds for a building, only we're putting cells on them. Uh, and then the third component is the real biological side, which might be uh, implantation, uh, we're requiring surgeons, certainly, or the folks who do this on the uh, the bench top where they put the growing heart valve in what's called a bioreactor, which is a a vessel on the bench that reproduces uh, the mechanical environment that would occur in the body as well as the metabolic environment.
1: It sounds like almost like science fiction. but <laughs>
0: uh, it is, and yet uh, it's here today. It's yeah. what we can actually do today. The limitations are obviously in the translation to humans at the moment.
1: Right. I actually was struck by a couple of things while listening to you talk. One was that there's clearly the folks that work with you and you have this big picture view of the problem that you're working to solve. You may work on one component of it, but you're obviously aware of um, all how all the pieces of the puzzle need to fit together in order to realize the solution to the problem. But I also wonder, when you get together with engineers and polymer scientists, do you find sometimes that you're all speaking a different language? Well, this is what I felt back 35 years ago when I was finishing uh,
0: my training and working um, on trying to do materials for heart valves, that in fact, they are very different languages that we all speak. The collaborations have gotten much more effective in those 35 years in general because I think that the people who do this, who work in this field, uh, whether they be engineers or uh, or surgeons, all now understand a lot more of uh, what the other side is seeing. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, a uh, an engineer who is interested in biomedical engineering will uh, take courses and do reading uh, and be involved a lot more on the biological side. Uh, and it's it's sometimes amazing how thoughtful cardiac surgeons are on the engineering side. So that I think there's a lot better communication now. I felt uh, when I did my training that all of this had as much as possible had to take place in the head of one individual in order to be most effective.
1: Mhm. I'm thinking how interesting it is too that in a world of increasing specialization the glo- the viewpoint is nevertheless wider. You may be extremely skilled at one very specialized, you know, series of tasks, but in order to work on a problem, you need to be able to speak the language or understand the issues in, in several other fields, maybe five or six other fields of yes. specialization.
0: The, the problems that are being tackled in this field, in genetics, in, uh, in many other fields that are multidisciplinary in the sense of they are biological in one or more fields and, and uh, uh, involve the physical sciences, and in the case of genetics now, informatics and uh, computer science are are crucial, that work is becoming increasingly collaborative, uh, and the need for individuals to communicate complex information is becoming even more important.
1: I wanted to ask you, on behalf of folks who may be listening who are still students, do you think it's still possible for somebody to find their way as they go through their education in sort of the way that you did, where you you had a Ph.D. when you decided that you wanted to sort of change the focus of your work. Or does one need to decide on that field of highly specialized work really early on in their education? I um, believe
0: that the best thing a student can do who's interested in something that's a little bit out of the ordinary, that isn't one of the traditional career paths, uh, I encourage students to do that. I work with students almost on a daily basis, sitting down with them and trying to help them decide how to train and what laboratories to do work in and uh, what courses to take, etc., to create a career path that's slightly different than their colleagues. Uh, and I think there's still a, an opportunity to do that. The most important aspect of this is not only uh, uh, what you come with in terms of your background and uh, your motivation. But very, very important in all of this is uh, identifying and working with appropriate mentors who have your career development uh, as their major focus uh, and people who have seen the big picture and know where you might be able to find your way as a student. I'm very encouraging to students who have backgrounds that combine what our traditional uh, physical and engineering sciences, with with medicine, and them involved both at Harvard and MIT and, in in uh, development of programs and dealing with individuals on uh, trying to to help foster this.
1: Those are very good points. Is there something about your work we haven't covered that you'd like to mention?
0: Well, I think it's it's just important to know that a lot of what we're learning from heart valves is also applicable to artificial blood vessels, is applicable to trying to create artificial heart muscle. Uh, And I think the big picture concepts of what we and others are developing and communicating on may even be applicable to artificial bones and ligaments and uh, joints and teeth, for that matter, where there's a lot of effort uh, at the moment. This is a big field. There's a lot of A lot of communication in the field, the clinical translation, the the translation to the clinical environment is going to happen in bits and pieces um, in the short term, but the actual formation of uh, artificial organs and structures by this methodology may may take many years. Mm
1: -hmm. I was going to ask you as a a sort of final wrap-up how long you thought it might take before we see tissue-engineered heart valves used in humans?
0: My guess is if we ever, and I'm not convinced we will ever, I mean, in a really? reasonable amount of time, but I think it's possible. Mm-hmm. My guess is, uh, and I think you identified this earlier in our discussion, you used the term 20 years. I think it's something between 10 and 20 years, quite okay. honestly. It's, right. So I think we have to be, uh, not to use a pun, a little bit sanguine uh, and... <laughs> thinking about how fast this will come to fruition, but uh, emphasizing once again, there are a lot of things that are being learned, a lot of important pieces of information that are being learned along the way, which are much more directly applicable to -to day-to-day medicine.
1: Well, it seems to me that even if you could um, improve the longevity of the treatments that are being used now, where you know that they have obsolescence and you're going to have to replace them or exchange them sooner or later, but... If you could do that less often, you're putting a patient through fewer surgeries, less risk, et cetera.
0: Yes, okay. certainly. I might just mention two other uh, kinds of advances that are ongoing uh, and actually are being used clinically that benefit from this kind of technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, last week, it was reported here, and I believe in the national newspapers, an advance at uh, Children's Hospital Boston where a baby in utero... Was noted to have, uh, by tests that were done in utero, noted to have an abnormality that prevented a, the communication between the two sides of the heart that was necessary for life once the. Once the circulation changed from that in uh, in the womb to, uh, to after the baby was born, and so they actually did surgery during that uh, gestation. they actually operated on the woman into the uh, the baby, and the baby uh, is in very good shape mm-hmm. now. the baby's several months old now, so that's that's one instance mm-hmm. where this kind of technology helps and another one is a major area right now is actually Implantation of heart valves, not by open heart surgery, but by means of catheters, so that uh, it is now becoming possible to put in an artificial heart valve without the need of an operation that goes through the uh, uh, the chest wall. Wow! Uh, and that is, those are in clinical studies on people mm-hmm. being very carefully monitored, carefully analyzed by us and others, to, in the hope that these will be routine clinical treatments probably within just a couple of years.
1: Okay. Thanks so much for joining us today, and um, you'll have to come back in a couple of years and tell us about uh, catheter-based replacement heart valves. Thanks a lot,
0: Leah. For those of you interested in learning more about Dr. Schoen's work, please see the links at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. So, Leah, what's our next uh, podcast about?
1: In podcast number five, we'll be joined by Dr. Amit Patel. He's a cardiothoracic surgeon who is using a patient's own stem cells to treat heart failure. Look for podcast number five in early March.
0: If you listeners out there have any ideas for future podcasts, or you'd like to just give us some feedback, please send us an email at mail at com. We can't reply to individual emails, but we do welcome your suggestions. And let me remind you that we are not physicians, and we cannot provide diagnoses or medical advice.
1: We do hope you'll stay subscribed to Regenerative Medicine Today, sponsored by the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine. The RSS feed of this podcast is at www.regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And we hope you'll join us again in a few weeks.